Welcome to Young at Heart Theater. It's so nice you're with us today. My name is Shane, and I'm going to read the second episode of The Secret Garden. Three, Across the Moor. She slept a long time, and when she awakened, Mrs. Medlock had brought out a lunch basket at one of the stations, and they had some bread and butter and some hot tea. The rain seemed to be streaming down more heavily than ever, and everybody in the station wore wet and glistening waterproofs. The guard lighted the lamps in the carriage, and Mrs. Medlock cheered up very much over her tea and bread and butter. She ate a great deal, and afterwards fell asleep herself. And Mary sat and stared at her and watched her fine bonnet slip on one side until she herself fell asleep once more in the corner of the carriage, lulled by the splashing of the rain against the windows. It was quite dark when she awakened again. The train had stopped at a station, and Mrs. Medlock was shaking her. You have had a sleep, she said. It's time to open your eyes. We're at Thwaite Station, and we've got a long drive before us. Mary stood up and tried to keep her eyes open while Mrs. Medlock collected her parcels. The little girl did not offer to help her because, in India, native servants always picked up or carried things, and it seemed quite proper that other people should wait on one. The station was a small one, and nobody but themselves seemed to be getting out of the train. The station master spoke to Mrs. Medlock in a rough, good-natured way, pronouncing his words in a queer, broad fashion, which Mary found out later was Yorkshire. I see thou's got back, he said, and thou's brought the young on with thee. Ay, that's her, answered Mrs. Medlock, speaking with a Yorkshire accent herself, and jerking her head over her shoulder toward Mary. How's thy missus? Well, now. The carriage is waiting outside for thee. A brougham stood in the road before the little outside platform. Mary saw that it was a smart carriage and that it was a smart footman who helped her in. His long waterproof coat and the waterproofing of his hat were shining and dripping with rain as everything was, the burly station master included. When he shut the door, mounted the box with the coachman, and they drove off, the little girl found herself seated in a comfortably cushioned corner, but she was not inclined to go to sleep again. She sat and looked out of the window, curious to see something of the road over which she was being driven to the queer place Mrs. Medlock had spoken of. She was not at all a timid child, and she was not exactly frightened, but she felt that there was no knowing what might happen in a house with a hundred rooms nearly all shut up, a house standing on the edge of a moor. What is a moor, she said suddenly to Mrs. Medlock. Look out the window in about ten minutes and you'll see, the woman answered, We've got to drive five miles across Mistlemore before we get to the manor. You won't see much because it's a dark night, but you can see something. Mary asked no more questions but waited in her dark corner, keeping her eyes on the window.
The carriage lamps cast rays of light a little distance ahead of them, and she caught glimpses of things as they passed. After they left the station, they had driven through a tiny village, and she had seen whitewashed cottages in the lights of a public house. Then they had passed a church and a vicarage and a little shop window or so in a cottage with toys and sweets and odd things set out for sale. Then they were on the high road and she saw hedges and trees. After that, there was nothing different for a long time. Or at least it seemed a long time to her. At last, the horses began to go more slowly, as if they were climbing uphill, and presently there seemed to be no more hedges and no more trees. She could see nothing, in fact, but a dense darkness on either side. She leaned forward and pressed her face against the window, just as the carriage gave a big jolt. Eh, said Mrs. Medlock, we're on the moor now, sure enough. Carriage lamps shed a yellow light on the rough-looking road which seemed to be cut through bushes and low-growing things which ended in a great expanse of dark, apparently spread out before and around. A wind was rising and making a singular, wild, low, rushing sound. It's not the sea, is it? asked Mary, looking around at her companion. No, not it, answered Mrs. Medlock, nor it isn't fields or mountains. It's just miles and miles and miles of wild land that grows nothing on but heather and gorse and broom, and nothing lives on it but wild ponies and sheep. I feel as if it might be the sea if there were water on it, said Mary. It sounds like the sea just now. That's the wind blowing through the bushes, Mrs. Medlock said. It's a wild, dreary place to my mind, though there's plenty that likes it, particularly when the heather's in bloom. On and on they drove through the darkness, and though the rain stopped, the wind rushed by and whistled and made strange sounds. The carriage passed over a little bridge beneath which water rushed very fast, with a great deal of noise. Mary felt as if the drive would never come to an end, and that the wide, bleak moor was a wide expanse of black ocean through which she was passing on a dry strip of land. I don't like it, she said to herself. I don't like it. And she pinched her thin lips more tightly together. The horses were climbing up a hilly piece of road when she first caught sight of a light. Mrs. Medlock saw it as soon as she did and drew a long sigh of relief. Oh, I'm glad to see that bit of light twinkling, she exclaimed. It's the light in the lodge window. We shall get a good bit of tea after a bit, at all events. It was after a bit as she said, for when the carriage passed through the park gates there were still two miles of avenue to drive through the trees which nearly met overhead and made it seem as though they were driving through a long, dark vault. 
They drove out of the vault into a clear space and stopped before an immensely long but low-built house which seemed to ramble round a stone court. At first, Mary thought that there were no lights at all in the windows. But as she got out of the carriage, she saw that one room in a corner upstairs showed a dull glow. The entrance door was a huge one, made of massive, curiously shaped panels of oak studded with big iron nails and bound with great iron bars. It opened into an enormous hall, which was so dimly lit that the faces and the portrait on the walls and the figures in suits of armor made Mary feel that she did not want to look at them. As she stood on the stone floor, she looked very small, odd little black figure, and she felt as small and lost and odd as she looked. A neat, thin old man stood near the manservant who had opened the door for them. You ought to take her to her room, he said in a husky voice. He doesn't want to see her. He's going to London in the morning. Very well, Mr. Pritchard, Mrs. Medlock answered. So long as I know what's expected of me, I can manage. What's expected of you, Mrs. Medlock, Mr. Pitcher said, is that you make sure that he's not disturbed and that he doesn't see what he doesn't want to see. And then Mary Lennox was led up a broad staircase and down a long corridor and up a short flight of steps and through another corridor and another until a door opened in a wall and she found herself in a room with a fire in it and a supper on the table. Mrs. Medlock said unceremoniously, Well, here you are. This room and the next are where you live and you must keep to them. Don't you forget that. It was in this way Mistress Mary arrived at Misslethwaite Manor, and she had perhaps never felt so contrary in all her life. Four, Martha. When she opened her eyes in the morning, it was because a young housemaid had come into her room to light the fire and was kneeling on the hearthrug, taking out the cinders noisily. Mary lay and watched her for a few moments and then began to look about the room. She had never seen a room at all like it and thought it curious and gloomy. The walls were covered with tapestry with the forest scene embroidered on it. There were fantastically dressed people under the trees, and in the distance there was a glimpse of turrets of a castle. There were hunters and horses and dogs and ladies. Mary felt as if she were in the forest with them, and out of a deep window she could see a great climbing stretch of land which seemed to have no trees on it, and it looked rather like an endless, dull, purplish sea. What is that? she said, pointing out the window. Martha, the young housemaid, who had just risen to her feet, looked and pointed also. That there? Yes. That's the moor, she said with a good-natured grin. Does they like it? 
No, answered Mary, I hate it. That's because they're not used to it, Martha said, going back to her hearth. Thou thinks it's too big and bare now, but thou will like it. Do you? inquired Mary. Ay, that I do, answered Martha, cheerfully polishing away at the grate. I just love it. It's none bare. It's covered with growing things, and it, and it smells sweet. It's fair lovely in spring and summer, when the gorse and groom and heathers and flower. It smells a honey, and there's such a lot of fresh air. The sky looks so high, and the birds and skylarks make such a nice noise, humming and singing. Oh, I wouldn't live away from the moor for anything. Mary listened to her with a grave, puzzled expression. The native servants she had been used to in India were not in the least like this. They were obsequious and servile, and did not presume to talk to their masters as if they were equals. They made salams and called them protector of the poor and names of that sort. Indian servants were commanded to do things, not asked. It was not the custom to say please and thank you, and Mary had always slapped her air in the face when she was angry. She wondered a little what this girl would do if one slapped her in the face. She was a round, rosy, good-natured-looking creature, but she had a sturdy way which made Mistress Mary wonder if she might not even slap back if the person who slapped her was only a little girl. You are a strange servant, she said from her pillows, rather haughtily. Martha sat back on her heels with her blacking brush in her hand and laughed without seeming the least out of temper. I know that, she said. If there was a grand missus at Misselthwaite, I should never even have been one of the underhouse maids. I might have been a scullery maid, but I'd never have been let upstairs. I'm too common, and I talk too much Yorkshire. But this is a funny house for all it's so grand. Seems like there's neither master or mistress except Mr. Pitcher and Mrs. Medlock. Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled about anything when he's here, and he's nearly always away. Mrs. Medlock gave me the place out of kindness. She told me she could never have done it if Misselthwaite had been like other big houses. "'Are you going to be my servant?' Mary asked, still in her imperious little Indian way. Martha began to rub her grate again. "'I'm Mrs. Medlock's servant,' she said stoutly, "'and she's Mr. Craven's, but I'll do the housemaid's work up here "'and wait on you a bit, but you won't need much waiting on. "'Who is to dress me?' Mary sat back on her heels and stared. She spoke in a broad Yorkshire in her amazement. Cannot thou dress thy sin? she said. What do you mean? I don't understand your language, said Mary. Ah, uh, I forgot, said Martha. 
Mrs. Medlock told me I'd have to be careful, or you wouldn't know what I was saying. I mean, can't you put on your own clothes? No, said Mary quite indignantly. I never did in my life. My aunt dressed me, of course. Well, said Martha, evidently not in the least aware that she was impudent. It's time that I should learn. Thou cannot begin younger. It'll do thee good to wait on thine sin a bit. My mother always said she couldn't see why grand people's children didn't turn out fair fools. What with nurses and being washed and dressed and took out to walk as if they was puppies. It is different in India, said Mistress Mary disdainfully. She could scarcely stand this. But Martha was not at all crushed. Eh, I can see it's different, she answered almost sympathetically. I dare say it's because there's such a lot of black folks instead of white people. When I heard you was coming from India, I thought you was a black too. Mary sat up in bed furious. What? she said. What? You thought I was a native? You! You! Daughter of a pig! Martha stared and looked hot. Who are you calling names, she said. You needn't be so vexed. That's not the way for you to talk. I'm nothing against the blacks. When you read about them in tracts, they're always very religious. Always read as a black man is a brother. I've never seen a black, and I was fair pleased to think that I was going to see one close. When I come in to light their fire this morning, I crept up to your bed and pulled back the cover, careful to look at you. And there you was, disappointedly, no more black than me, for all you're so yellow. Mary did not even try to control her rage and humiliation. You thought I was a native! You dared! You don't know anything about natives! They are not people! They are servants who must salam to you! You know nothing about India! You know nothing about anything! She was in such a rage and felt so helpless before the girl's simple stare, and somehow she suddenly felt so horribly lonely and far away from everything she understood and which understood her, that she threw herself face downward on the pillows and burst into passionate sobbing. She sobbed so unrestrainedly that good-natured Yorkshire Martha was a little frightened and quite sorry for her. She went to the bed and bent over her. Eh, you mustn't cry like that there, she begged. You mustn't for sure. I didn't know you'd be so vexed. I don't know anything about anything, just like you said. I beg your pardon, miss. Do stop crying. There was something comforting and really friendly in her queer Yorkshire speech and sturdy way, which had a good effect on Mary. She gradually ceased crying and became quiet. Martha looked relieved. 
It's time for thee to get up now, she said. Mrs. Medlock said I was to carry the breakfast and tea and dinner into the room next to this. It's been made into a nursery for thee. I'll help thee on with thy clothes if thou get out of bed, if the buttons are at the back and thou cannot button them up thyself. When Mary at last decided to get up, the clothes Martha took from the wardrobe were not the ones she had worn when she arrived the night before with Mrs. Medlock. These are not mine, she said. Mine are black. She looked the thick white wool coat and dress over and added with cool approval, Those are nicer than mine. These are the ones thou must put on, Martha answered. Mr. Craven ordered Mrs. Medlock to get him in London. He said, I won't have a child dressed in black, wandering around like a lost soul, he said. It'll make the place sadder than it is. Put color on her. Mother said she knew what he meant. Mother always knows what a body means. She doesn't hold with black herself. I hate black things, said Mary. The dressing process was one which taught them both something. Martha had buttoned up her little sisters and brothers, but she had never seen a child who stood still and waited for another person to do things for her as if she had neither hands nor feet of her own. Why does that not put on the own shoe? she asked when Mary quietly held out her foot. I, I did it, said Mary, staring. It was the custom. She said that very often. It was the custom. The native servants were always saying it. If one told them to do a thing their ancestors had not done for a thousand years, they gazed at one mildly and said, It is not the custom. And one knew that was the end of the matter. It had not been the custom that Mistress Mary should do anything but stand and allow herself to be dressed like a doll. But before she was ready for breakfast, she began to suspect that her life at Misselthwaite Manor would end by teaching her a number of things quite new to her. Things such as putting on her own shoes and stockings and picking up things that she let fall. If Martha had been a well-trained, fine young lady's maid, she would have been more subservient and respectful and would have known that it was her business to brush hair and button boots and pick up things and lay them away. She was, however, only an untrained Yorkshire rustic who had been brought up in a moorland cottage with a swarm of little brothers and sisters who had never dreamed of doing anything but waiting on themselves and on the younger ones who were either babies in arms or just learning to totter about and tumble over things. If Mary Lennox had been a child who was ready to be amused, perhaps she would have laughed at Martha's readiness to talk, but Mary only listened to her coldly and wondered at her freedom of manner. At first she was not at all interested, but gradually, as the girl rattled on in her good-tempered, homely way, Mary began to notice what she was saying. Ah, you should see them all, she said. There's twelve of us, and my father only gets sixteen shilling a week. I can tell you my mother's put 
to it to get porridge for him all. They tumble about on the moor and play there all day, and Mother says the air of the moor fattens him. She says she believes they eat the grass, same as the wild ponies do. Ah, Dickon, he's twelve years old, and he's got a young pony he calls his own. Where did he get it? asked Mary. He found it on the moor with its mother when it was a little one, and he began to make friends with it and give him bits of bread and pluck young grass for it, and it got to like him, so it follows him about and it lets him get on his back. Dickon is a kind lad, and animals likes him. Mary had never possessed an animal pet of her own and had always thought she would like one. So she began to feel a slight interest in Dickon, and as she had never before been interested in anyone but herself, it was the dawning of a healthy sentiment. When she went into the room which had been made into a nursery for her, she found it was rather like the one she'd slept in. It was not a child's room, but a grown-up's room with gloomy old pictures on the walls and heavy old black oak chairs. A table in the center was set with a good substantial breakfast, but she had always had a very small appetite, and she looked with something more than indifference at the first plate Mary set before her. I don't want it, she said. That doesn't want thy porridge, Martha exclaimed incredulously. No. Thou doesn't know how good it is. Put a bit of treacle on or a bit of sugar. I don't want it, repeated Mary. Eh, said Martha. I can't abide to see such good victuals go to waste. If our children was at this table, they'd clean it bare in five minutes. Why, said Mary. Why, echoed Martha. Because they scarce ever had their stomachs full in their lives. They're as hungry as young hawks and foxes. I don't know what it is to be hungry, said Mary, with the indifference of ignorance. Martha looked indignant. Well, it would do thee good to try it. I can see that plain enough, she said outspokenly. I've no patience with folks as just sits and stares at good bread and meat. My word, don't I wish that Dickon and Phil and Jane and the rest of them had what's here under their pinafores. Why don't you give it to them, said Mary. It's not mine, answered Martha stoutly. And this isn't my day out. I get my day out once a month, same as the rest. Then I go home and clean up for mother and give her a day's rest. Mary drank some tea and ate a little toast and some marmalade. E wrap up warm and run out and play you, said Martha. It'll do you good and give you some stomach for your meat. Mary went to the window. There were gardens and paths and big trees, but everything looked dull and wintry. Out? Why should I go out on a day like this? Well, if thou doesn't go out, thou'll have to stay in. And what's thou got to do? Mary glanced about her. There was nothing to do.
When Mrs. Medlock had prepared the nursery, she had not thought of amusement. Perhaps it would be better to go out and see what the gardens were like. Who will go with me, she inquired. Martha stared. You'll go by yourself, she answered. You'll have to go learn to play like other children does when they haven't got brothers and sisters. Ah, Dickon goes off on the moor by himself and plays for hours. That's how he made friends with the pony. He's got sheep on the moor that knows him, and birds has come and eats out of his hand. However little there is to eat, he always saves a bit of his bread to coax his pets. It was really this mention of Dickon that made Mary decide to go out, although she was not aware of it. There would be birds outside, though there would not be ponies or sheep. They would be different from the birds in India, and it might amuse her to look at them. Martha found her coat and hat for her, and a pair of stout little boots, and she showed her the way downstairs. If there goes that way, there comes to the garden, she said, pointing to a gate in a wall of shrubbery. There's lots of flowers in the summertime, but there's nothing blooming now. She seemed to hesitate a second before she added, One of the gardens is locked up. No one has been in it for ten years. Why, asked Mary, in spite of herself. Here was another locked door added to the hundred in the strange house. Mr. Craven had it shut when his wife died so sudden. He won't let no one go inside. It was her garden. He locked the door and dug a hole and buried the key. Ah, there's Mrs. Medlock's bell ringing. I must run. That's our episode of The Secret Garden for this week. We'll read more next Saturday. And tomorrow, Sunday at 3 o'clock, we'll read a Cherokee legend, How the Blue Ridge Mountains Were Made by a Vulture. I'll see you then.